Chapter Two of Historical Tales, Volume One, American. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kalinda. Historical Tales, Volume One, American. By Charles Morris. Chapter Two. Frobisher and the Northwest Passage. Hardly had it been learned that Columbus was mistaken in his belief, and that the shores he had discovered were not those of India and Cathay, when vigorous efforts began to find some easy route to the rich lands of the Orient. Balboa, in 1513, crossed the continent at its narrow neck, and gazed with astounded eyes upon the mighty ocean that lay beyond, the world's greatest sea. Magellan, in 1520, sailed round the continent at its southern extremity, and turned his daring prows into that world of waters of seemingly illimitable width. But the route thus laid out was far too long for the feeble commerce of that early day, and various efforts were made to pass the line of the continent at some northern point. The great rivers of North America, the James, the Hudson, and others, were explored in the eager hope that they might prove to be liquid canals between the two great seas but a more promising hope was that which hinted that America might be circumnavigated at the north as well as at the south, and the Pacific be reached by way of the icy channel of the North Seas. This hope, born so long ago, has but died out in our own days. Much of the most thrilling literature of adventure of the nineteenth century comes from the persistent efforts to traverse these perilous Arctic Ocean wastes. Let us go back to the oldest of the daring navigators of this frozen sea, the worthy knight Sir Martin Frobisher, and tell the story of his notable efforts to discover a northwest passage, the only thing left undone, as he quaintly says, whereby a notable mind might become famous and fortunate. As an interesting preface to our story, we may quote from that curious old tome, Purchase His Pilgrimage, the following quaintly imaginative passage. How shall I admire your valor and courage, ye marine worthies, beyond all names of worthiness, that neither dread so long either presence nor absence of the sun, nor those foggy mists, tempestuous winds, cold blasts, snows, and hail in the air, nor the unequal seas, where the tritons and Neptune's self would quake with chilling fear to behold such monstrous icy islands, mustering themselves in those watery plains, where they hold a continual civil war, rushing one upon another, making winds and waves give back, nor the rigid, ragged face of the broken lands sometimes towering themselves to a lofty height, to see if they can find refuge from those snows and colds that continually beat them, sometimes hiding themselves under some hollow hills or cliffs, sometimes sinking and shrinking into valleys, looking pale with snows, and falling in frozen and dead swoons, sometimes breaking their necks into the sea, rather embracing the waters than the air's cruelty." and so on, with the like labored fancies. Great God, he concludes, to whom all names of greatness are little, and less than nothing, let me in silence admire thy greatness, that in this little heart of man, not able to serve a kite for a breakfast, hast placed such greatness of spirit as the world is too little to fill. Thus in long-winded mead of praise writes Master Samuel Purchase, of those bold mariners of whom he speaks, our worthy knight Sir Martin, is one of the first, and far from the least. An effort had been made to discover a northwest passage to the Pacific as early as 1527, and another nine years later, 
but these were feeble attempts, which ended in failure and disaster, and discovered nothing worthy of record. It was in 1576 that Frobisher, one of the most renowned navigators of his day, put into effect the project he had cherished from his youth upward, and for which he had sought aid during fifteen weary years, that of endeavoring to solve the ice-locked secret of the Arctic seas. The fleet with which this daring adventure was undertaken was a strangely insignificant one, consisting of three vessels which were even less in size than those with which Columbus had ventured on his great voyage. Two of these were but of twenty tons burden each, and the third only of ten, while the aggregate crews numbered but thirty-five men. With this tiny squadron, less in size than a trio of fishing smacks, the daring adventure set out to traverse the northern seas and face the waves of the great Pacific, if fortune should open to him its gates. On the 11th of July, 1576, the southern extremity of Greenland was sighted. It presented a more icy aspect than that which the Norsemen had seen nearly six centuries before. Sailing thence westward, the land of the continent came into view, and for the first time by modern Europeans was seen that strange race, now so well known under the name of Eskimo. The characteristics of this people and the conditions of their life are plainly described. The captain went on shore and was encountered with mighty deer, which ran at him with danger of his life. Here he had sight of the savages, which rowed to his ship in boats of seal-skins, with a keel of wood within them. They ate raw flesh and fish, or rather devoured the same. They had long black hair, broad faces, flat noses, tawny of color, or like an olive. His first voyage went not beyond this point. He returned home having lost five of his men, who were carried off by the natives. But he brought with him that which was sure to pave the way to future voyages. This was a piece of glittering stone, which the ignorant goldsmiths of London confidently declared to be ore of gold. Frobisher's first voyage had been delayed by the great difficulty in obtaining aid. For his new project assistance was freely offered, Queen Elizabeth herself, moved by hope of treasure, coming to his help with a hundred and eighty-ton craft, the aid, to which two smaller vessels were added. These being provisioned and manned, the bold navigator, with a merry wind in his sails, set out again for the desolate north. His first discovery here was of the strait now known by his name, up which he passed in a boat, with the mistaken notion in his mind that the land bounding the strait to the south was America, and that to the north was Asia. The natives proved friendly, but Frobisher soon succeeded in making them hostile. He seized some of them and attempted to drag them to his boat, that he might conciliate them by presence. The Eskimos, however, did not approve of this forcible method of conciliation, and the unwise knight reached the boat alone, with an arrow in his leg. But to their great joy, the mariners found plenty of the shining yellow stones, and stowed abundance of them on their ships, deeming, like certain Virginian gold-seekers of a later date, that their fortunes were now surely made. They found also a great dead fish, round like a porpoise, twelve feet long, having a horn of two yards, lacking two inches, growing out of the snout, wreathed and straight like a wax taper, and might be thought to be a sea unicorn. It was reserved as a jewel by the Queen's commandment in her wardrobe of robes. A northwest wind having cleared the strait of ice, the navigators sailed gaily forward, full of the belief that the Pacific would soon open to their eyes. 
It was not long before they were in a battle with the Eskimos. They had found European articles in some native kayaks, which they supposed belonged to the men they had lost the year before. To rescue or revenge these unfortunates, Frobisher attacked the natives, who valiantly resisted, even plucking the arrows from their bodies to use as missiles, and when mortally hurt, flinging themselves from the rocks into the sea. At length they gave ground and fled to the loftier cliffs, leaving two of their women as trophies to the assailants. These two, one being old, says the record, the other encumbered with a young child, we took. The old witch, whom diverse of our sailors supposed to be either the devil or a witch, had her buskins plucked off to see if she were cloven-footed, and for her ugly hue and deformity we let her go. The young woman and child we brought away. This was not the last of their encounters with the Eskimos, who, incensed against them, made every effort to entrap them into their power. Their stratagems consisted in placing tempting pieces of meat at points near which they lay in ambush, and in pretending lameness to decoy the Englishmen into pursuit. These schemes failing, they made a furious assault upon the vessel with arrows and other missiles. Before the strait could be fully traversed, ice had formed so thickly that further progress was stopped, and leaving the hoped-for Cathay for future voyagers, the mariners turned their prows homeward, their vessels laden with two hundred tons of the glittering stone. Strangely enough, an examination of this material failed to dispel the delusion. The scientists of that day declared that it was genuine gold ore, and expressed their belief that the road to China lay through Frobisher Strait. Untold wealth, far surpassing that which the Spaniards had obtained in Mexico and Peru, seemed ready to shower into England's coffers. Frobisher was now given the proud honor of kissing the queen's hand, his neck was encircled with a chain of gold of more value than his entire two hundred tons of ore, and with a fleet of fifteen ships, one of them of four hundred tons, he set sail again for the land of the Golden Promise. Of the things that happened to him in this voyage, one of the most curious is thus related. The Salamander, one of their ships, being under both her courses and bonnets, happened to strike upon a great whale, with her full stem, with such a blow that the ship stood still, and neither stirred backward or forward. The whale thereat made a great and hideous noise, and casting up his body and tail presently sank under water. Within two days they found a whale dead, which they supposed was this which the salamander had stricken. Other peril came to the fleet from icebergs, through the midst of which they were driven by a tempest, but they finally made their way into what is now known as Hudson Strait, up to which, filled with hope that the continental limits would quickly be passed, and the route to China open before them, they sailed some sixty miles. But to their disappointment they found that they were being turned southward, and instead of crossing the continent were descending into its heart. Reluctantly Frobisher turned back, and after many buffetings from the storms, managed to bring part of his fleet into Frobisher Bay. So much time had been lost that it was not safe to proceed. Winter might surprise them in those icy wilds. Therefore, shipping immense quantities of the fool's gold which had led them so sadly astray, they turned their prows once more homeward, reaching England's shores in early October. Meanwhile the ore had been found to be absolutely worthless, the golden dreams which had roused England to exultation had faded away, and the new shiploads they brought were esteemed to be hardly worth their weight as ballast. 
For this disappointment the unlucky Frobisher, who had been appointed High Admiral of all lands and waters which he might discover, could not be held to blame. It was not he that had pronounced the worthless pyrites gold, and he had but obeyed orders in bringing new cargoes of this useless rubbish to add to the weight of Albion's rock-bound shores. But he could not obtain aid for a new voyage to the icy north. England for the time had lost all interest in that unpromising region, and Frobisher was forced to employ in other directions his skill in seamanship. With the after-career of this unsuccessful searcher for the northwest passage we have no concern. It will suffice to say that fortune attended his later ventures upon the seas, and that he died in 1594 from a wound he received in a naval battle off the coast of France. End of chapter 2